Hey, Alex. Elliot, mate, how are you going? I'm good. What's news with you? Got a new puppy. Um, her name is Remy. She's a golden cocker spaniel. So uh, I feel like I'm checking a few boxes in the adult world. You know, was it buying a house, getting a gauged puppy? Oh. Um, there's a few things after that, I imagine. But yeah, I got a puppy and it's great. I have seen said puppy. <laughs> Incredibly cute. No great surprise there. Yes. Yeah. My puppy is more than two years old now and still very cute, but not puppy. Coco. Anymore. Yeah. Mm, Coco's yes. cute. Yeah, agreed, but I'm biased. <laughs> um, so apart from talking about puppies, what are mm. we doing here? So this is The Pulse. Um, for our new listeners, what we do is talk about things that generally interest us. Um, we talk about a lot of Apple products often, but mainly what we talk about is news relating to legal tech, legal business, legal operations. So everything from acquisitions to interesting news to kind of hot topics, trends, things like that. So mm. this is what the pulse is. Mm. Where's my 15 and a half inch MacBook Air, Apple? Uh, <laughs> it's a constant theme. Um, yes. And then when you get it, you'll, you would want, want a MacBook Pro. Or if you get a MacBook Pro, then you said you would have got an Air. So you'll hear I'm it first on yeah. this podcast. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, all right. So getting on to the news, uh, it's pretty much still all about GPT. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, is there any other tech or legal tech news? Well, this is it. This is the most exciting part. I mean, if you've been living under a rock, you haven't heard about it. Mm. Um, But it is is absolutely flooding everywhere and it's hard Mm. for us not to talk about it. Yeah. All right. So the first piece of news here is that uh, in the last couple of weeks at the time of recording, so late March 2023, uh, a new version of GPT is out. It is GPT-4. Uh, and OpenAI, the company behind GPT, says that it is more creative and collaborative than ever before and it can solve uh, difficult problems with greater accuracy. Uh, one of the sort of big changes is that it can now accept as input uh, images as well as text, um, but it can still only respond in text. So that might be something that comes in the future. It's ability to a potential ability to respond with images, a bit like, you know, some of those uh, image generation tools, DALI, Stable Diffusion, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I think the question is, well, how big a change is this actually? Is it, you know, is it is it a big thing? And OpenAI itself says that this is iterative. It's not revolutionary. Um, and the CEO, whose name I can't remember right now, uh, in an interview was saying that in casual conversation with the model, the differences between version 4 and version 3.5 will be quote-unquote subtle uh, and that it retains many of the problems that the earlier models suffered, in particular the tendency to make up in, uh, information, which they call hallucinating, uh, sorry, hallucinating. Uh, and also the uh, slightly um, worrying capacity to generate violent or harmful text. So there you go. Violent and harmful Apparently. text? Is mm. that like abusive text? Mm, I'll have I to. think possibly. Mm. Mm. And apparently people um, thinking that the model uh, is interested in them romantically. So there you go, <laughs> all of the above. Of course they are. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Now, but I think so on this question of, sort of how revolutionary is this and tying it back to legal, one really interesting thing is that, um, and this was sort of a separately reported item, is that this new uh, version of the model, so GPT-4, it has passed the uniform bar exam. And so what is the uniform bar exam? Well, it's kind of 
how it sounds. It's a it's a uniform uh, exam used in 41 out of the 50 states of the US, uh, and it is a as a test that you need to pass to become uh, a lawyer or an attorney over there. Uh, and the uniform bar exam, it's got three sections. So it's got a multiple choice um, section. So a section with many multiple choice questions. Uh, it has something called the performance test, which is short um, written, short form written questions or responses in short form. And then it's got another section called the essay section, which is two uh, long form essays. So a multi-part, multi sort of structured test. Now the previous GPT, so GPT 3.5, it was only ever tested on the multiple choice section and it got just under 50% of the questions correct, which put it in the bottom 10% of test takers. So compared to all the humans that uh, have taken that test, it would be it, it would have been in the bottom 10% of test takers. Uh, so GPT-4, the new one, it has recently been tested on all the sections of the test. And so a few things to note about its uh, performance. Firstly, it passed the exam. So there you go. An AI model has passed the uniform bar exam. Um, it got uh, almost 76% of the multiple choice questions correct. So a significant improvement compared to uh, GPT 3.5, a 26% improvement, no, almost 26% improvement. Um, and overall, it was assessed to have performed in the top half of all test takers. So better than 50% of humans, right? So, so what does this mean? Well, I think it's hard to know. Um, <laughs> clearly, this new iteration of the model is able to pass the exam. But I, I think a question here is, does passing the uniform bar exam correlate with making it or you, if you're the person taking the exam, a good lawyer? I don't know the answer. I'm not sure. I think often performance on exams doesn't correlate with practice in the real world. So I think, you know, because I think the real story here is just the rapid pace of improvement of the model. So GPT 3.5, which, which has got some sort of technical underlying code names, that was released around a year ago now. So it was released in March 2022. So this new model, uh, this new version of the model has been released about a year later and its performance on that exam uh, has dramatically, dramatically improved. Uh, and so, you know, at this one task, it seems like a significant improvement. What that means for its ability to sort of augment and perhaps take over parts of legal practice will remain to be seen. Hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts? Well, it's hard to talk um, bad about the bar exam because I haven't <laughs> haven't done it. But does it say more about the bar exam than it does about AI? Like, maybe. Uh, I, I think that bar, lol, <laughs> yes. pun intended, um, is the bar in which lawyers need to be able to to reach and to become lawyers. I guess mm. so. Because a system can pass it, you know, could it could it go to court? Maybe I don't know. Mm. Could it provide answers to different types of queries like a lawyer does? Sure. Mm. So, look, I think this is going to be really interesting for the US. Is, you know, is the US going to change how they approach this bar exam, or are they going to change just like a academics are thinking about mm. the way in which they assess legal performance, like within a you know a law degree, for instance? So really interesting it's 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 hard to get some thoughts around like the actual impact of this because often i'm starting to think okay well how does this apply to to legal and then it changes like we were thinking about what 3.5 did and you know yes it didn't pass the bar exam but it could do some amazing things well a year a year later it can mm. now do that like it's just like you said change is happening so fast and what this means is 
it's hard to know TBC. Yeah, and and I think the sort of important point here is the the rapid Im- improvement in general capability, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it seems to me that, and probably the next story relates to this as well, um, that that how these models might be used generally, but also in legal practice at the moment, will be very much augmenting legal practice, you know, helping you write emails, helping you draft documents, et cetera. And if this evidences a significant improvement in the general capability of this tool, then I would imagine that would also mean a significant improvement in that augmentation capability, right? Mm. So it's, I don't think this means it's, you know, GPT is going to be your lawyer anytime soon, but its ability to help humans do and deliver legal work um, clearly is going to improve as it improves. Um, So, yeah. yeah. So for me, it's that general improvement. Yeah. Okay. I also think, and a lot of knowledge workers are thinking about this. So a lot of, a lot of other industries are thinking about this is, you know, what GPT is, is let's call it an engine, right? It's this really, really powerful engine and it's getting better and better every year, every month and every week. The question is going to be, how do you then leverage that engine or how do you, how do you point it to a specific use case? And that's where it's going to be really powerful at the moment. It's quite, you know, gimmicky and fun. We can have a conversation with it and it can do some really cool stuff. can even pass the the bar exam, but how do you then translate that into, to real tangible benefits for Mm -hmm. both lawyers as users of that solution, but ultimately, you know, clients. Mm -hmm. So thinking about access to justice, thinking about the business when it comes to, um, you know, who lawyers support. So, when is it going to kind of transfer over? When is it going to turn into some material um, benefits? And we are starting to see a lot of technology companies incorporate this. I mean, we spoke to Ironclad, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, and there are other solutions out there that are starting to think about how do they use this brain. So, mm. you know, yes, the brain and the engine is there. It's getting smarter. How industries convert that into to real benefit is going to be, well, I guess the next race, right, Elliot? I'm going to skip past your use of the word brain there, Alex, and um, <laughs> get on to... Because you're going to dive into the philosophy question. Yes, well, yes, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll not take that bait. Um, <laughs> but I do want to get to the... I think it's worth moving mm. to the next story because the next story is an example yeah, of yeah. a practical application of GPT-4. So the next story is that Microsoft recently, I think in the last week or so, has announced um, something called Copilot for the Microsoft 365 suite, and that includes sort of Outlook, Word, Teams, all that stuff that's in the Microsoft suite that lives uh, in the cloud. And Copilot is a suite of tools to help you when you're um, reviewing, drafting, analyzing documents and data that are in those documents. Um, And it is powered by GPT-4, right? So, yeah, so impressively and importantly, this is not just a side panel um, which sits in, you know, Word or Outlook or or whatever it might be. It's a lot more than that. And the features and functionality it offers are tailored for each application. So I'll give a few examples here. So in MS, in Microsoft Teams, uh, it will help to summarize meetings, identify action items, create meeting minutes, um, and it can it can attribute questions and discussion when it is creating the minutes to particular participants. So it uses some mm-hmm. kind of voice recognition. Interesting to see how accurate that will be. Um, in Word, uh, it'll be able to rewrite text for you. So a bit like the existing spelling and grammar checker, but, you know, much more sort of comprehensive and powerful. Uh, it'll be able to generate text for you. It'll be able to generate entire documents for you, right? Uh, in Outlook, same kind of thing. It'll be able to write emails for you. It'll be able to summarize whole email chains. I think could be really useful for a lot of people. 
Um, and interestingly here, Microsoft have said that they intend to focus on Outlook for mobile, where text entry and generation is a lot more difficult because, you know, who wants to sort of punch away on the um, on your mobile phone keyboard? And so in that case, the ability to have a system which can automatically generate text for you will, will be really valuable. At least that's their thinking. Uh, in Excel, it'll be able to write formulas, create pivot tables. Who knows how to create pivot tables? Um, <laughs> and it'll be able to analyze data and automatically generate charts and all sorts of things for you. Uh, in PowerPoint, this I think is really cool. It'll be able to generate entire slide decks based on other documents. So you can point it to other documents and get it to generate um, get generate PowerPoint slides. And in the future, and this is where GPT-4's inability to generate images as output is relevant, but in the future when it will be able to generate images as output, then the thinking is that in something like PowerPoint, uh, it'll be able to generate image content for slide decks. So I think all that stuff is really interesting. few things to note here. Um, so Microsoft is piloting uh, Copilot with 20 of its customers. I'm guessing that means 20 of its corporate customers. So I don't think it means 20 people. I think it's going to be a lot more than 20 people, but 20 of their customers. Um, and Microsoft have said that they are well aware that GPT still has the potential to uh, hallucinate and to generate inappropriate content, as we sort of mentioned. And so a big focus from Microsoft is the user experience features, which attempt to ensure that humans will will and do remain responsible for the content. And so I thought I'd just give a few thoughts of my own. So I haven't been sort of lucky enough. I'm not in one of those companies that's testing these features. They seem sort of huge and incredibly valuable to me. Um, the Verge, the, the tech blog, had a really positive article, which we'll link to in the show notes. If we think about what this means specifically for legal, you know, I would sort of start by saying I think it means the same for legal as it does for sort of non-legal workflows or general workflow workflows, right? So the ability to generate summaries, review documents, generate output, etc., all of that stuff is going to be relevant for legal as well. The one thing that I think is potentially different about legal is that the standards for precision and accuracy, particularly in generated text, um, I think are a lot higher because there's just a lot more writing on it. That's that's part of what we do as lawyers. We try to generate text which is precise and accurate. And so I think those features that Microsoft are focusing on to make sure that humans remain responsible are probably even more important in a legal context. And so one way I could see this going potentially is that for lawyers to be using tools like this, um, that those UI elements which uh, help to ensure that the humans remain responsible and remain uh, aware of the content that's being generated are going to be even more important. And potentially we might see specific UI focused on lawyers, again, to make sure that they remain responsible for that content. And, you know, I think, and I think we mentioned this, or I think I mentioned it in the conversation we had recently with um, Mary and Kai from Ironclad, and that is that to me, this is a very similar problem to the problem that's facing self-driving car um, uh, vendors. And that is this, this need to make sure that when you're automating away a lot of a task, particularly one that has risk, how do you make sure that humans remain in control? And so I think it's a quite a, a, quite a similar um, scenario and a similar problem. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so much in there, Elliot. Mm. And um, 
I, I, we spoke about this in our, I think it was our last pulse, or at least it wasn't that long ago, where mm. we were seeing some rumors about this, about Microsoft doing yep. some kind of investment in this space. And I think at the time, they're looking at integrations into Word and PowerPoint. So now we do know it as Copilot. And again, as a reminder, Microsoft invested a billion dollars into OpenAI in 2019. So that like they've got skin in the game, right? They, they saw the opportunity in 2019. It's now 2023. And they've just released this kind of really awesome tool and co-pilot. I think your approach is probably the right one, Elliot, in terms of look, there's going to be some risks in this and you need to have a human in the loop to make sure that mm. those really specific kind of legal text outputs are correct, like you said. Just like when you have a self-driving car, you need to have a person there making sure it doesn't go off the road. But there is a bunch of stuff that lawyers do that this could do quicker, easier, and and probably more accurately, hmm. things that lawyers don't want to do. So think of like an engagement letter. Like, I don't want to do that. And hmm. it could whip that up really quickly. Proposals, like whether that is a proposal in a, in a Word document or a PowerPoint document, like just putting something together based on some work that you've done in the past. So like the admin side of stuff, let's call it the low value, non-legal work that lawyers have to do. Ultimately, that's hopefully just going to disappear. Hmm. And you might have to do a few changes and stuff. And the risk is lower there because we're not providing the legal advice side of things. And mm. eventually, as the technology gets smarter, then it probably will start to creep into that, right? We've talked mm. about the ability for it to draft an NDA or a contract or something simple like that. Or, you know, I even asked GPT to put a lease, a commercial lease agreement together for my own purposes, and it was actually pretty good. So, mm. you know, it can do the 40%, 50%, 60% and so on. And like, that's the really important part. Mm. Um, and the other part to this, and I'm not sure if we've spoken about it in the past or whether it was just a conversation you and I had, but the training element to this, like if you're, if you're a young lawyer trying to understand how to put something together, some, you know, in the past you'd have to go to a, a precedent library that your firm might have and maybe they don't even have that. So you're trying to develop something from scratch, you're researching and so on. You know, this could almost act as like a bit of a knowledge transfer within a firm and a training tool. So there's lots of really cool applications to this. Um, you know, in in the next part where I'm talking about some some cool stuff as it relates to other models, you know, we can start to see potentially law firms and even in-house teams creating their own versions of this to get those benefits. Absolutely. I mean, just on the training point, Alex, mm. um, that feels even more risky. Because <laughs> right? so it's training, yeah, they can hallucinate. Well, training your lawyers on um, uh, through a model which you don't necessarily um, understand how what output it's going to generate, how what the accuracy is in advance. Um, I, I'm certainly not saying don't do it, <laughs> but it just feels like there'd be a lot you'd want to think through before you go down that path. Yeah, no, mm. you, you're right. You're right, but like, like I think. It could do part of that, like you mm. said, and maybe the you know the human in the loop is that more senior lawyer that can kind of check the things. But mm. yeah, maybe getting to fifty percent, forty percent, sixty percent is is okay. Well, actually, one other um, point I'm just make here, which I think will be a segue into the next uh, item, is that clearly one of the benefits that will flow to clients here is hopefully um, cost savings, right? So if uh, you know you need less of a lawyer's time to generate content for you, and some of that can be automated away, then actually an ultimate benefit uh, to clients is cost savings. And that applies both to the sort of grunt work that the lawyer is doing, and maybe in the long term, the generation of the models themselves that underlie an augment legal practice so mm. that's another point i'd make mm. yep 
Yep. Um, I guess it's a good segue <laughs> into talking about this way, which I guess the outcome could be, like you said, cheaper services or mm. better services for clients. But, you know, we've had, we've had a, a lot of conversations about GPT and other things. And I saw an article that really piqued my interest. And in summary, Stanford University created a, a large language model similar to GPT for 600 bucks mm-hmm. and wait for it using GPT. <laughs> which is a bit meta, I guess. Mm. So you have to say with me because it's a little it's a little technical, it's a bit of a journey, but then I'll have a conversation about it with you. So, you know, the first thing to say is it's, it's probably not as good as chat GPT, but according to their own tests, it's actually better. So the question is, well, how do they do this? So ready for the journey? Hit me. Okay. So they started with Meta's open source large language model, which is the smallest and cheapest of the large language models. So it's open source. So it's free. You can go use it and start to train it. Now, although that specific model is trained on a trillion tokens, it still lags significantly behind GPT. Mm. And that's now, hey, just, just quickly, Alex, sorry mm. to interrupt. A token, I believe, is a part of a word. Correct. Right? So, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's, so yeah, it's, it's just imagine a, a bunch of information effectively pulled from the internet which you know could be parts of different sentences and different words and other things but yeah you're right so a trillion tokens it's just got lots of information now what it doesn't have is the ability to understand that question answer style conversation so it's really really smart you know it's read you know a hundred thousand books or whatever but it doesn't understand how to put that into practice so what the stanford team did was basically ask gpt to take 175 human written instructions output pairs. So here's what I want you to do and here's the answer to it and generate similar style questions and answer formats. So, you know, it's going to take a long time to even write the 175. They use ChatGP to, to generate more, right? And that's the training information. So about $500 later, they had 52,000 sample conversations to use in training and fine tuning their open source model. It then took three hours and eight uh, eight cloud processing computers to complete the training, which cost about a hundred bucks. So we're at six hundred dollars now. And then once they had that model, they trained it using those kind of uh, question answer instruction output pairs. They tested their model against GPT through a range of different tests, and GPT won eighty nine tests. And their model, which was called Alpaca, which I think is hilarious, won ninety. So according to their own tests, it's smarter. Um, some high-level kind of comments here. They were able to generate something that was very, very smart in, you know, 600 bucks. We'll share the uh, the link to this article because they actually then talk about how they could have done this significantly quicker and significantly cheaper mm-hmm. <laughs> after they've done it. And I, I guess two other points, you know, this is both cool and scary <laughs> at the same time. The cool part is... If you think about a legal team and, you know, let's say it's one of the largest law firms in the world, what if they take that, you know, 175 human written instruction output pairs and, you know, one person in the law firm does 10, right? So 10 times, let's say 4,000. That's a lot of kind of instruction output pairs. Then use GPT to, like I said, create versions of those and train, you know, an open source model just like Stanford University did to create, you know, their law firm's version of ChatGPT. Now, it's possible. You can do it right now. The only thing holding you back is that open AI's terms of conditions say you may not use the output of the services to develop models that compete with open AI. Mm. So look, 
there's a policy that says you couldn't do it, hmm. but is that going to stop people? I don't know. I mean, the scary part here is that obviously this opens up the floodgates for for some dodgy actors, dodgy people that could use this for you know, phishing operations, spam, hmm. like you know, endless kinds of bad things. So like, it's good and bad, scary and fun, exciting and daunting. <laughs> Elliot, hmm. thoughts? Well, this to me is um, at its core a commercial issue for OpenAI, <laughs> right? Because right. you've got someone using OpenAI, uh, using GPT to generate the training data to produce another model, yep. which perhaps has um, is of a lower standard, but but maybe of sufficient standard for some particular task, hmm. right? And maybe you don't want to use uh, GPT for you know, in that in that circumstance or for that task because it's just better than what you need, right? So maybe you're, you know, you're throwing something which is, uh, has higher perform. You would be throwing something which has higher performance at a problem that doesn't need that level of performance mm. and you can use a little bit of the high performance thing to make something which is of lower performance but sufficient performance, right? <laughs> and yep. so, so then the question becomes, well, what does that mean for GPT and OpenAI? So are they missing out essentially on potential profit and potential revenue because their model is not the right answer for that scenario and they, they're they sort of leaving money on the table there? And so for me, the, the question that comes to mind immediately is should OpenAI make some other model available for some cheaper price, uh, which leverages the same underlying um, uh, sort of, you know, set of whatever it is, code, um, you know, learning, whatever it might be, um, doesn't have the same fidelity or the same quality that the the current GPT models do, uh, but is available for cheaper so that they can capture more of the market. Maybe they maybe they make older versions of GPT available for a lower price. I'm not sure, you know, exactly how they would want to cut that up, but for me it's primarily a commercial issue. Yeah, no, I can see that. Definitely mm. a commercial issue for them. And when you read the article, you'll see that they made all of this available for academics for research purposes. So, mm. you know, all of this was, you know, above board and they were able to do that. But it just kind of highlights that really anybody could do this right now. What Stanford University has also done is is published all of this information. So all of the training sets, all of the data, the model that sits behind it. So you could take this now and retrain it and and, and do other things. Mm. But again, linking it back to to legal and you know, will we see this really turn into, you know, a law firm's differentiator? Like how powerful is their version of their large language model? You know, how much money and time are they going to invest into training their large language model? The bigger the firm you have, the more people you have to train it, the more accurate it's going to be. So it's kind of like an exponential advantage almost. So I think that what it could do is flood the market with a lot of language models, which makes language models more accessible and potentially cheaper. Hmm. You know, from, a, from a consumer's perspective, from you and I, it's probably a good thing. <laughs> um, you know, is it is it a bad thing if, you know, OpenAI shut their doors, you know, shut down a lot of the capability for these types of things so that their model couldn't be, be you know, recreated? Then maybe their solution can't really be used for the, for the intended purpose. So really interesting. I think it's good overall, I'm just really worried about how this could be used in the wrong way. And it probably already is without us knowing, right? Could be. It'll remain <laughs> to be seen. Yes. Mm. Yes. If only it could tell you which Mac to get. <laughs> <laughs> Update on that in the future. Uh, Alex, good to chat as always. Thanks, Elliot. 